If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I am Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Ali Azerbaijani. He is the CTO and co-founder of Cogito. He has 18 years of commercial experience as a scientist, an entrepreneur, designer of world-class computational technologies. His pioneering doctoral research at MIT Media Labs and probabilistic modeling for 3D vision was the basis for his first startup company, Alchemy 3D Technology, which was created which created a market in the film and video post-production industry for camera match moving software. Welcome to the show, Ali. Thank you, Byron. I'd like to start off with the question, what is artificial intelligence? So I'm glad we're starting with some, uh, some definitions. I think I have, I have two answers to that question. Um, the original definition of artificial intelligence, I believe, in a scholarly context, is about about creating a human-like, uh, a machine that operates like a human. And part of the problem with defining what that means is that we don't really understand human intelligence very well. Uh, we have a pretty good understanding now about how how the brain functions physiologically and you know we understand that that's an important part of of how we uh, provide cognitive function but we don't have a really good understanding of mind or consciousness um, or how people actually represent information Um, so I think that that the first answer is that is that we really don't know what artificial or machine intelligence is other than the desire to replicate human-like function in uh in computers i think the second answer that i have is is how ai uh is being used in in industry um and I think that that is a little bit easier to define because I believe almost all of what we call AI in industry is based on building input-output systems that are trained and engineered using machine learning. That's really at the essence of what we refer to in the industry as, as AI. So you have kind of a high concept definition and then kind of a, 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 a bread and butter workaday kind of working definition. And that's kind of how you're bifurcating that world. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, we're in the midst of an, an AI revolution. I, I don't, I don't believe that at least in the first sense of the term that we're in an, in an AI revolution at all. I think that, we're in the midst of a machine learning revolution, which is which is really important and it's really powerful. But I guess what I take issue is with the term intelligence, because 
most of these things that we call artificial intelligence don't really exhibit the properties of of intelligence that we would that we would normally um, you know think are required for uh, you know for human intelligence. Um, these systems are largely um, trained in the lab and then deployed. And when they're deployed, they typically operate as a simple static input-output system. Uh, it's, you know, you put in audio and you get out words, or you put in video and you get out locations of faces. Uh, and and that's, really, uh, that's really at the core of, of what we're calling AI now. And it, it's really, uh, I, I think it's really the result of, of advances in technology that's made machine learning possible at large scale um, and and it's not it's not really a scientific revolution um, about in, intelligence or artificial intelligence all right well I think what let's explore that some because I um, I think you're right and so let's talk I mean I have a I have a book coming out in, in spring of 2018 which has 20,000 words in it dedicated uh-huh. to the brain the mind and consciousness I mean it it really tries to wrap to wrap around those three concepts. And so let's go through them if you don't mind for just a minute. So you started off by, by saying with the brain, we understand how it functions. And I, I would love to, I, I'm not, I, 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 like go into that because as far as, as I understand it, we don't know how a thought is encoded. We don't know how, you know, the memory of your 10th birthday party uh, or, or what pineapple tastes like or any of that. We don't know how any of that's actually encoded. We can't write to it. We can't read from it, uh, except in the most very rudimentary sense. So do you think we really no, no, do I understand think, the brain? No, I, I think that's the point I was actually making, is that we understand the brain at some level physiologically. We understand that, there, you know, that there's neurons and, and, and gray matter and... And, you know, we understand a little bit of the physiology of the brain, but we don't understand those things that you just mentioned, uh, which, uh, which I refer to as the mind. We don't really understand how, how data is stored. We don't understand how, how it's recalled um, exactly. And we don't really understand, um, you know, other human uh, functions like like how uh, like consciousness and and feelings and, and emotions and how those are related to uh, you know to cognitive functions. So, uh, so so that's really what I was saying is we I don't understand okay. how intelligence evolves from it. Although you know really where we're at is we just understand uh, you know a little bit of the physiology. Yeah, it's interesting. There's no consensus definition on what intelligence is, and that's why you can point at anything and, and, and say, well, that's intelligent. You know, my sprinkler that comes on when my grass is dry, that's intelligent. So the mind is, of course, a very, um, shall we say, controversial concept. But I think there is a consensus definition of it that, like, everybody can agree to, which is it's, the, it's all the stuff the brain does that doesn't seem, emphasis on seem, like something an organ should be able to do. Like, your liver doesn't have a sense of humor. Your liver doesn't uh, have an imagination, all of these things. So based on that definition of creativity, of um, and not even getting to consciousness, not even experiencing the world, just these abilities, these raw abilities, like to, to write a poem um, or, you know, 
paint paint the great painting or what have you. Do you, you're you're saying we actually have not made any real progress towards any of that. That isn't that's kind of gotten come kind of, you know mixed up in this whole machine learning thing. Am I right that you think we're still at square one with that whole building an artificial mind? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see a lot of difference intellectually where. Uh, you know, where we are now from, you know, when I was in school in the, in the late eighties and nineties, uh, in terms of, of theories about the mind and, and theories about, about how we, how we think and reason, um, the, you know, the, the basis for, uh, the current uh, machine learning revolution is largely based on neural networks, which were, you know, invented in the 1960s. And really, what is is fueling the the revolution is technology. The fact that we have the the CPU power, the memory, the storage, and the networking, and the data. Um, and, and we can put all that together and, and, and train large networks at scale. That's really what is, is fueling the amazing advances that we have right now. Not, not really any, you know, philosophical, um, you know, new insights into how human intelligence works. So putting, putting it out there for just a minute, is it possible that we cannot, that an AGI, that a general intelligence, that, that an artificial mind, is it possible that that cannot be made and uh, cannot be instantiated in machinery? That's a really good question. I think that's a, that's another philosophical question that, um, that we need to wrestle with. I think that, I think that there are, there are at least two schools of thought on, on this that, you know, that I'm aware of. Um, and I think the, the prevailing notion, which is, I think, a big assumption, is that it's just a matter of scale. So I think that people look at what we've been able to do with machine learning, and we've been able to do incredible things with machine learning so far. And I think people think of, well, you know, a human sitting in a chair can sit and observe the world and have, you know, understand what's going on in the world and communicate with other people. And so if you just took that head and you could replicate what that head was doing, you know, which would require scale much larger than what we're doing right now with artificial neural networks, um, then, you know, and then embody that in a machine, then you could set this machine on the table there or on the chair and have that machine do the same thing. So I think the, so I think one school of thought is that, is that the human brain is a, is an existence proof that you can, that a machine can exist to, to do the, you know, the operations of a, of a human intelligence. So all we have to do is figure out how to put that in the machine. I think that there's a lot of assumptions involved in that, in that, train of thought um, because I think that so the, the other the other train of thought which is which is more 
along the lines of where I land philosophically is that it's not clear to me that in, that intelligence can exist without ego, without the notion of an embodied self that exists in the world, that interacts in the world, that has a reason to live and, and a drive to survive. It's not clear to me that, that it, it can exist or, and obviously we can do tasks that are similar to what, uh, to what human intelligence does, but I'm not entirely sure that, you know, because we don't understand how human intelligence works, it's not clear to me that you can, that you can create an intelligence in, an, in a disembodied way. So I've had, um, you know, 60 something guests on the show and I keep track of the number that, um, don't believe we can actually build a general intelligence. And it's, I think five. And I mean, they're, you know, um, deep Varma, Esther Dyson. I mean, they're, they're people who have similar, or, well, more so there. I mean, I think they're even more explicitly saying they don't think we can do it. The other 60 guests, say, have kind of the same line of logic, which is, we don't know how the brain works, we don't know how the mind works, we don't know how consciousness works, but we do have one underlying assumption that we are machines. And if we are machines, then we can build a mechanical us. And if and any, any argument against that or any way to engage it, uh, the word that's that's often offered is magic. The only way to get around that is to appeal to magic, to appeal to something supernatural, to appeal to something unscientific. So my question to you is, is that true? Do you have to appeal to something unscientific for that logic to break down? Or are there maybe scientific reasons, completely, you know, causal system-y kind of systems that by which we cannot build a conscious machine? Well, I don't believe in magic. I don't think that's my argument. Um, um, my argument is more around what is the role that what is the role that the that the body around the brain plays in intelligence. I think we make the assumption sometimes that the entire uh, the entire uh, you know, consciousness of a person, entire cognition, everything's happening from the neck up. But the way that, the way that people exist in the world and learn from simply existing in the world and interacting with the world, um, I think plays a huge part in intelligence and consciousness uh you know being attached to uh being attached to a body that that the brain identifies with as as self and and that the you know that the mind has a has a self-interest in um i i think may be an essential part of it so 
so I, I guess my point of view on this is, is I don't know, uh, I don't know what the, uh, you know, what the key ingredients are that go into, into intelligence. But I think that we need to understand well, l l let me put it this way. I think without understanding how human consciousness and human feelings and human empathy uh, works, you know, what the mechanisms are behind that. I mean, it may be, you know, simply mechanical, but without understanding how that works, uh, I think it's going to be, it it's unclear how you would, you would build a machine intelligence. And in fact, scientists have struggled from the beginning of AI even to define it. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to say that you can build something until you can actually, until you can actually define it, until you actually understand, uh, you know, what it is. So do you, do you think, therefore, that because the, the kind of the philosophical argument against that would be like, look, you've got a finite number of senses and those are giving input to your brain. And, you know, you know, the old philosophical thought experiment, you're just, a, you know, a, a brain in a vat somewhere and that's all you are. And you're being fed these signals and your, your brain's reacting to them, but there really isn't even an external world that you're experiencing. Um, so they would say, you know, that you can build a machine and give it these senses, but you're saying there's something more than that that we don't even understand that is beyond even the, the five senses. Well, I, I suppose if you could, if you had a machine that could replicate atom for atom, um, you know, a human body, then you would be able to, you know, create an intelligence, but, um, how practical would it be? So I, I think yeah, there are easier ways you know, to create of, a, a person than that. Well, yeah, well, uh, yeah, that well, that's true too. <laughs> but the um, but how practical is a human as a as a as a computing machine? I mean, one of the advantages of the you know the computer systems that we have, the you know the machine learning based systems that we, that we call AI is that, you know, we know how we represent data and we can access the data, you know, as we were talking about before with human intelligence, you can't just, you know, plug in and, and, you know, download people's thoughts or emotions. So it may be that in order to achieve intelligence, you have to, create this machine that is not very practical as a machine. And so, so you might just come, you know, full circle to, well, is that really the powerful thing that we think it's going to be? I think people entertain the question because, um, you know, this, this, this question of are people, simply machines are, are, is there anything that happens inside? Are you just a big bag of chemicals with electrical impulses going through you? 
I, I think people have kind of a, you know, that, that like emotionally engaging that question is, is why they do it. Not because they want to necessarily build a replicant. Um, I could, I could yeah. be wrong. So let me ask you this. Uh, let's talk about consciousness for a minute. So to, to be clear, uh, people say we don't know what consciousness is. And this is, of course, wrong. Everybody agrees on what it is. It is uh, the experiencing of things. It is, it is a difference between being um, a computer being able to sense temperature and a person being able to feel heat. It's like that difference. So it's been described as the last scientific question we don't really know how to ask and we don't know what the answer would look like i put like eight theories together in in this book i wrote do you have a theory of of i mean just like even a gut reaction is it an emergent property is it a quantum property is it a is it a fundamental law of the universe is it a uh, is it some i mean do you have a just like a gut feel on what direction you would look to explain consciousness I, I really don't know. I, I think that my, I think that my instinct is along the lines of, of what I, um, of what I talked about recently with embodiment. Like I, I, my gut feel is that, is that it's not like a disembodied brain is not is not something that can develop a consciousness. I think consciousness fundamentally requires a self. And beyond that, I, I don't really have any great theories about, about consciousness. I'm not, I'm not an expert there. Um, but Boy, it's a yeah, you know, my, 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 go ahead. I, well, I, I was just going to repeat that, you know, my, my gut feel is, is we tend to separate the, the, you know, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we tend to separate the function of mind from the body. And I think that may be a huge assumption that we can do that and still have uh, self and consciousness and intelligence. I think it's a fascinating question. It's in, and about half of the guests on the show just don't want to talk about it. They just do not want to talk about consciousness <laughs> because they say it's not, it's yeah. not a scientific question and it's, it's a distraction. And then half of them, um, very much. I mean, it's the thing you are most, it's the only thing that makes living worthwhile. I mean, it's why you feel love and why you feel happiness. And I mean, it's, it is everything in a way. Um, yeah. And, and people have such widely like Stephen Wolfram was on the show and, uh, he thinks it's all just computation. And so to that extent, anything that performs computation, which is really just about anything, is conscious. Like a hurricane is conscious. Um, you know, cool. the Gaia hypothesis suggests that consciousness comes about, well, before I get to Gaia, one theory is consciousness is an emergent property. That just like you're a trillions of cells that don't know who you are and none of them have a sense of humor, you somehow have a a distinct emergent self and a sense of humor. You know, there are people who think the planet itself uh, may have a consciousness. Um, others say that activity in the brain, uh, in the sun, looks a lot like brain activity, and perhaps the sun is conscious, and that that is an old idea. And, and it is interesting that all children, when they draw an outdoor scene, they always put a smiling face on the sun. So do you think consciousness may be 
more ubiquitous, not unique to humans, that it may kind of be, you know, uh, in, in all kinds of places? Or do you, do you just at a gut level think it's a, it's a special human character, or human and other animals you might want to include in it, characteristic? That's an interesting, it's an interesting point of view. Um, I, you know, I certainly see how uh, it, you know, it's a nice theory about it being a continuum, I think is really what, what he's saying, right? That, that there's, right. that there's some, some level of consciousness in the simplest thing. And then uh, that is just, you know, I think this is more along, it's just a matter of scale uh, type of philosophy, which is that, you know, at a larger scale than what emerges is, is a more uh, complex and meaningful consciousness. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a project in Europe, you're probably familiar with the Human Brain Project, which is really trying to build an intelligence through that scale. And, and then kind of the counter to it is the, is the Open Worm Project, which is, you know, they've, they've sequenced the genome of the nematode worm and its brain has 302 neurons. And for 20 years, people have been trying to model those 302 neurons in a computer to build, as it were, a digital functioning nematode worm. And by one argument, they're no closer to cracking that than they were 20 years ago. Um, so the scale question is very much, it has its adherence in, at, both, at both extremes. So... Let's switch gears now and, and put that world aside and let's start with the world of machine learning okay. and we won't call it yeah. intelligence anymore. Uh, it's just machine learning. And, and if we use the word intelligence, it's just a convenience. So yeah. how would you describe um, the state of the art? How, as you point out, the techniques we're using aren't new, but the, our ability to apply them is like, are we in a machine learning renaissance and, is it just beginning or what are your thoughts on that? I think we are in a machine learning renaissance and I think we're closer to the beginning than to the end. The, as I, as I mentioned before, the, you know, the real driver of the renaissance is, is technology. Uh, we have the, computational power to do massive amounts of learning. We have the data and we have the networks to bring it all together and the storage to store it all. Um, and that's really what, what has allowed us to, to realize the sort of theoretical uh, capabilities of, of complex networks to essentially model input output functions. Um, and We've done, we've done amazing things with, with that particular technology. It's very powerful. Um, I, think that, uh, I think there's a lot more to come. And, um, you know, it's pretty exciting the kinds of things that we can do with it. So... There's a lot of concern, as you know, the debate about the impact that it's going to have on employment. What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'm not really concerned about that at all. I, I think that 
I think that largely what what these systems are doing is is they're they're allowing us to automate a lot of things. Um, and I think that that's happened before uh, in history. I I think the the concern that I have is not is not so much about uh, removing jobs because you know the entire history of the industrial revolution we've built technology that has made jobs obsolete and there's always new jobs. There's so many things to do in the world that there, there's always new jobs. I think the concern, if there's any about this, is the rate of change. And whether, you know, so, so I think at a generational level, it, it, it's, not, it's not a problem. The next generation are going to be doing jobs that we don't even know exist um, right now or that don't exist right now. Um, I think the, the problems may be, um, you know, sort of a within a generation uh, transformation. If you have, if you start automating jobs that that belong to people that you know who cannot be retrained uh, in something else. But I think that the uh, that there will always be new jobs. Is that possible that there's? a person out there that cannot be retrained to do meaningful work. I mean, we've had 250 years of unending technological advance that would have blown the minds of somebody in 1750. And yet we don't have anybody who it's like, no, they can't do anything. I mean, you know, assuming that, that you are, uh, you know, have, have your, have uh, full use of your body and mind. There's not a person on the planet that cannot in theory, Add economic value, all the more if they're given technology to do it with. So, do you really think yeah. that they'll have people that quote cannot be retrained? No, I don't. I don't think it's a can issue. I, I agree with you. I think that I think that people can be retrained. And like I said, I'm not. I'm not really worried that there won't be jobs for people to do. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know there are practical problems of the rate of change. I mean, we've seen it in the, uh, you know, in the last decades in manufacturing jobs that a lot of those have disappeared overseas. And, you know, there's, there's real economic pain in the regions of the country that, uh, you know, where those jobs were really prominent. And I don't think there's any, you know, theoretical reason why people can't be retrained or, you know, our, our government doesn't really invest in that uh, as much as it should. Um, but the, um, but I, I think there's, I think there's a practical problem that people don't get retrained. And so, yeah, that, that can cause shifts, but I think, I think those are temporary. I, I don't, I personally don't see long-term issues with, with transformations in technology. It's interesting because other I'm going to, I'm going to, I mean, it's, this is a show about AI, which obviously holds it in high regard, but there have been other technologies that have been as transformative. I mean, an assembly line is a kind of AI, right? I mean, it's, and that was adopted really quickly. Electricity was adopted quickly and steam was adopted. I mean, do you think AI really is all, or machine learning as we're going to call it really is all that being adopted all that much faster or is it just 
another equally transformative technology like electricity or something. I I agree with you. I, I think that there that it it's it's transformational, but I think it's probably creating as many jobs as it's as it's automating away right now. Um, I, I don't I don't really you know you know for instance in in our industry uh, which is in contact centers a big trend is trying to uh, to automate you know basically to to digitize a lot of the communications so that uh, to take load off the telephone call center and what most of our uh, enterprise customers have found with their contact centers is the more they digitize their call volume actually goes up it doesn't go down so there's kind of some you know conflicting evidence there about what um you know uh, how much this is actually going to take away from uh from jobs i i you know i i'm i'm of the opinion you know i think anyone in any endeavor understands there's always more to do than you have time to do so uh you know automating things that can be automated uh i generally feel is a positive thing and you know putting people to use in in functions where uh you know where we don't know how to automate things is i think is always going to be an available path so you you brought up uh what you do tell us a little bit about uh cogito and his mission so our mission is centered around uh, helping people have better conversations. So we're really focused on the voice stream. And in particular, our, our main business is in uh, customer call centers, where what we do is we, our technology listens to ongoing conversations, understands what's going on in those conversations from a uh, from an interactive and relationship uh, point of view, from a behavioral point of view, and uh, gives gives agents in real time feedback uh, when when conversations aren't going well or when there's something they could do to uh, improve the conversation. So that's where we get to the the concept of of augmented intelligence, which is using these uh, using these uh, machine learning endowed systems to, uh, to help people uh, do their jobs better uh, rather than trying to replace them. And, you know, that, that's a tremendously powerful paradigm. Um, the, uh, you know, there, there's trends, as I mentioned, towards trying to automate these things away, but, Often it is, you know, our, our customers find it more valuable to uh, increase the competence of, of the people doing the jobs there because those jobs can't be completely automated, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, trying to uh, automate away the simple things. Well, hit rewind. I mean, back way up with Kojito because I'm, I'm really fascinated by the thesis that there's all of this, there's what you say, and then there's how you say it. And that we're yeah. really good, 
with one half of that equation, but we don't apply technology to the other half. Can you kind of tell that story and how it how it led to what you do? Yeah. So imagine listening to two people having a conversation in a foreign language that you don't understand. Uh, you can undoubtedly tell a lot about what's going on in that conversation without understanding a single word. So you can tell whether people are angry at each other. You can tell uh, whether they're cooperating or hostile or, um, you know, whether they're, you, know, you can tell a lot of things about the interaction without understanding a single word. And that's essentially what, what we're doing uh, with the behavioral analysis of, of, of how you say it. Um, so when we listen to uh, telephone conversations, that's a lot of what we're doing is we're listening to the, to the tenor and the interaction in the conversation and getting a feel for how that conversation is going. And I mean, you're using listen here, of course, colloquially. There's no, there's nothing really listening. There's a data stream that's being analyzed, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, I guess it sounds like the, the, the like the parents on, uh, in, on the Charlie Brown stuff, won't, 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 right? Like, so it hears that and yeah. can kind of figure out what's going. So, um, that sounds like a technology with broad application. So can you like, Talk about like in a broad sense what can be done, and then kind of why you chose what you did choose to, as a starting point. It actually wasn't the starting point. Um, so the application that that originally inspired the company was more of a mental health application. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of anecdotal um, understanding that people with clinical depression or depressed mood uh, speak in a, uh, speak in a characteristic way. Uh, and so the original uh, inspiration for uh, building the company and the technology uh, was to use in, in telephone outreach operations with chronically ill populations that have very high rates of clinical depression and very low rates of detection and treatment of, of clinical depression. Um, and so that was a, um, you know, that, that's one very interesting application uh, that, uh, you know, we're still pursuing. Uh, the, the second application uh, came up in that same context with, with in the context of health and wellness call centers is the concept of engagement. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of the, uh, you know, beneficial, uh, approach to, uh, you know, to health is preventative care. So, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis in healthcare on helping people quit smoking and have better diets and things like that. And these programs normally take place over the telephone, and so there's conversations, but they're usually only successful when the when the the patient is uh, or the member is is engaged in the process. And so we we used uh, uh, we used this sort of uh, speech and conversational analysis to 
to build models of engagement, and that would allow uh, that would allow companies to either react to to under-engaged patients or not waste their time with under-engaged patients. And um, you know, the third application, which is what we're primarily focused on right now, uh, is is uh, agent interaction, um, the, the quality of agent interaction. You know, there's there's a huge amount of 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 value uh, with uh, you know big companies that are consumer oriented, and you know particularly those that that have uh, membership relationships with customers um, in in being able to provide a uh, able to provide a good uh, you know human interaction when there uh, when there are issues. So customer service centers. Um, and it, it's very difficult if you have thousands of, of agents on the phone to understand what's going, uh, what's going on, uh, in those calls, uh, much less improve it. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies are really focused on improve it. So, uh, you know, we're the, we're the first system that allows, allows these companies to understand what's going on in those conversations in real time, uh, which is, the moment of truth where they can actually, uh, where they can actually, uh, you know, do something about it. And, uh, we allow them to do something about it by giving information, not only to supervisors who can provide real-time coaching, but also to agents directly so that they can understand their own, their own conversations are going south and, uh, and be able to, uh, you know, to correct that and have better conversations themselves. So I have like a hundred, Go ahead. That, that's really the gist of what we what we do right now. So I have like a hundred questions all running for the door at, at once with this. So, okay. My first question is: You're trying to measure engagement. Um, that's like a, as a factor. How generalizable yeah. is that technology? Like, if you plugged it into this conversation that you and I are having, uh, is does it like not need any modification? Engagement is engagement is engagement. Or is it like, oh no, at company X, it's going to sound different than a phone call from comp- at company Y? That's a really good question. Um, and so in some general sense, an engaged interaction, like if you took uh, sort of a minute of, of, our, of our conversation right now, uh, it's pretty generalizable. The, the concept is that if if we're if you're engaged in the topic, then you're going to have a, a conversation which is engaged, which means there's going to be a good back and forth, and there's going to be good energy in the conversation and things like that. Now, in practice, uh, when you're when you're talking about in a call center context, uh, it does get trickier because the uh, every call center. Uh, has potentially uh, quite different uh, shapes of conversations. So one call center may need to spend a minute going through formalities and and you know verification and and, and all of that kind of kind of business. Um, and that kind of and that part of the conversation is not the part that you actually care about, but it's the part where we're actually talking about a meaningful topic. 
whereas another call center may have a completely different shape of a conversation. So what, what we find that we have to do, and you know, where machine learning comes uh, in handy here, is that we need to be able to take our general models of engaged interactions and convert those in particular and adapt those in particular contexts to understanding uh, uh, to understanding uh, engaged overall conversations, and and those are going to vary from context to context, and so that's what, sort of where adaptive machine learning comes into play. Well, so then my next question is, from person to person, how consistent? I mean, no doubt if you. If, if, if you had a recording of me for an hour, you could get a baseline and then measure my relative change from that. But, but when you drop in, you know, is, is Bob X of Tacoma, Washington and Susie Q of Toledo, do they, do they exhibit consistent traits or attri- um, yeah, attributes of engagement? Yeah, there are certainly, there's certainly variation among people's speaking style. And you look at areas of the country, different dialects. Uh, things like that, and then you also look at different languages, and there, those, uh, those are all going to be a little bit different. So, uh, but when when we're talking about engagement at a statistical level, uh, these models uh, work really well. So, what the key is, you know, when thinking about product development for these, is to focus on. Uh, providing tools that are effective at a statistical level. So, you know, looking at one particular person, uh, your uh, your model may, uh, you know, indicate that this person is not engaged, but maybe that's just their uh, their normal speaking style. But statistically, it's, it's fairly you. generalizable. So yeah. then my, my next question is, is there something special about engagement? Could you, if you wanted to, tell whether somebody's amused or somebody's intrigued or somebody's annoyed or somebody's outraged? Or I mean, there's a there's a palette of human belief, of of human emotions. And so I guess I'm asking, engagement, like you said, there are not so much tonal qualities you're listening for, but you're counting back and forths. You're counting that sort of. I mean, it's that's kind of a numbers, not a not a, so on these other factors, are you going to be able? Could you do that hypothetically? Yeah, and in fact, you know, what, our system is a, is a platform for doing exactly that sort of thing. And, and some of those things we we've done, uh, you know, we built models for you know for various uh, you know various emotional qualities and 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 things like that. And so that that's, that's the exciting thing is that is that once you have access to uh, to these conversations and you can, uh, and, and you have the, uh, you know, you have, you have the data to be able to, you know, identify these various phenomena, you can apply, uh, you can apply machine learning and understand, you know, what are the characteristics that, that, um, what are the characteristics that lead to a perception of, of amusement or, or, you know, whatever, you know, result you're looking for. So then I have to ask, I would think this, look, I, I applaud what you're doing. Anybody who can get me better uh, phone support is, you know, my, my, uh, has, has my wholehearted uh, uh, support. But 
but I wonder if, if like wh- where this technology wouldn't be heading is uh, kind of an OEM thing where it's put into caregiving robots, for instance, who need to learn how to read the emotions of their, uh, the person they're caring for and modulate what they say. So it's like a feedback loop to a self-teaching kind of, like just to use just that use case, the uh, robot caregiver that uses this, oh, she's annoyed, oh, he's happy, oh, whatever, as a feedback loop. Is that like, am I way off in sci-fi land or is that like, no, no, that, that could be done? No, that, that's exactly right. And that's um, it's an anticipated application of, of what we do as, as we get better and better at being able to understand and classify useful uh, human behaviors and then inferring useful human emotional state from those behaviors um, that can be, that can be used in automated systems as well. So frequent listeners to the show will know that I often bring up uh, Weizenbaum and Eliza. And so the, the setup is that this, Weizenbaum back in the 60s made this really simple chatbot, really, that uh, you would say, I don't feel good today. And it would say, why don't you feel good today? I don't feel good today because of my mother. Why does your mother make you not feel? You know, it's this really basic thing. But what he found yeah. is that people were connecting with it. And this really disturbed him. And, he, and so, you know, he unplugs it. And he said that when the computer says, I understand that it's just a lie, that there's no I, which sounds like you would agree with. And there's nothing that understands yeah. anything. So do you worry yeah. that, um, that that is a – Weizenbaum would, would, would be that's awful. If that thing's manipulating an old person's emotions, it's like that's just a terrible, terrible thing. What, what would you say? I think it's a danger. And I, I think that – yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're going to see that sort of thing happen for sure. The, um, you know, I think people look at chatbots and, and, you know, say, oh, look, that's an artificial intelligence that's doing something intelligent. And, and it's really not as, as, you know, Eliza proves, I mean, that you can just have a rule-based system on the back and type stuff in and type stuff out. You know, a, a verbal chatbot might use a you know, speech to text as an input modality and text to speech and an output modality, but have also a rules-based engine on the back. And it's really doing nothing intelligent, um, but it, it can give the illusion of something intelligence going on because you're talking to it and it's talking back to you. Um, so I think that, yeah, there will be bumps along that that road for sure in um, in trying to build these technologies that that you know, particularly when you're trying to build a system to replace a human and, and, and trying to convince the user of the system that, that you're talking to a human, <laughs> um, that, that, that's, that's definitely sketchy ground. Right. And I mean, it's, it, I guess it's forgivable. We don't kind of know where it's, I mean, it's all new, right? It's all stuff that um, yeah. we're having to kind of wing it. Well, we're coming up towards the end of our time. I just have a couple of closing questions, which are, um, do you, do you, um, do you read 
uh, science fiction? Do you watch science fiction movies? Do you go to science fiction TV? And if so, is there any any view of the future, any view of AI or anything like that that you look at and think, yeah, oh, yeah, it could happen. It could happen someday. Yeah, it, it's really it's really hard to say. I think that. Um, You know, I, I can't think of anything, um, you know, Star Wars, of course, used very anthropomorphized uh, robots. Um, and, you know, if you think of a system like HAL in 2001, um, you know, you could certainly simulate something like that. Uh, you know, if you're talking about information, um, you know, ha being able to talk to Hal and have Hal look stuff up for you and then talk back to you and tell you what the answer is. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's totally believable. Um, but, you know, of course the twist in, in 2001 is that Hal ended up having a, having a, a, you know, a sense of self, a sense of its own self and, and decided to make decisions. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm very much rooted in the present and, and there's a lot of exciting things going on right now. Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. It's interesting that you use Star yeah. Wars, which of course is a long time ago, but it's interesting yeah. you use Star Wars because somehow or another, you think the movie would be different if, C3, if C-3PO were named Anthony and, you know, R2-D2 was named George. Yeah. And, you know, it would just like... Yeah. That would that would just take on a whole different like like giving them names is even like one step closer to that uh, to that whole thing you know data in Star Trek kind of walked the line right you had a name but it yeah. was you know data um, all right well yeah, I think it's, what, it's interesting go it's ahead. interesting actually to look at the difference between C three PO and and R two D two yeah you look at C three PO and it has the form of a human. And you can ask the question, well, why would you build a robot that has the form of a human? Um, you know, R2-D2 <laughs> is a robot which does, you know, or could potentially do exactly what C-3PO does um, in the form of a whatever cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to look at the, at the contrast there and, 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 and why they imagine there's, you know, the, two different kinds of robots, one which was very anthropomorphized and one which was, you know, very mechanical. Yeah, you're right, because the decision not to give R2 speech, it's not like he didn't have enough memory, right? Like he needed another 30 yeah. bag of RAM or something. And, you know, so right. that also was like something clearly deliberate. I remember reading that Lucas's original wasn't really going to use Anthony Daniels to voice it. He was going to get somebody who sounded like a, a used car salesman kind of fast talking and all of that and that's what the script is written for so i'm sure it's a literary device but but like yeah. a lot of these things the uh i mean i think i'm a firm believer that what what comes out in science fiction isn't predicting the future it kind of makes it you know and i think you know uhura had a bluetooth device in her ear uh and so it's it's kind of like whatever the literary imagining of it is is probably going to be what the scientific manifestation of it is to some degree. Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Yeah, let me ask. I think that, go ahead. Uh, yeah. The the concept of a self fulfilling prophecy is uh, 
is uh, definitely there. Well, I tell you what, if people want to keep up with you and uh, all this uh, work you're doing, do you, um, do you write? Do you have a Yakov on Twitter? How do you kind of, how can people follow what you do? Uh, yeah, we're going to be writing a lot more in, in the future. Our, our website, cogitocorp.com, is where you'll find uh, the links to the, the things that we're writing on AI and the work we do here at Cogito. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I'm, I'm always excited to have a guest who, um, who, who is willing to engage these, these big questions and, and uh, take, as you pointed out earlier, a more contrarian view. So thank you for your time, Ali. Uh, thank you, Byron. It's been fun. And uh, thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.